Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Investing Power Hour on Chit Chat Money, soon to be Chit Chat Stocks, officially next week. So excited for that. Going to make the name change to Chit Chat Stocks. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. On these episodes, we talk about whatever we want for an hour about financial news, investing news, earnings reports, investing philosophy, anything. Sometimes we bring on special guests. Most of the time, it is just us. Let's go through some housekeeping items. If you enjoy these episodes, if you are a fan of the podcast, the best way to support us and say thank you is to give us a five-star review or really any review on Spotify or Apple Podcast, hopefully a five-star review. I will say that again. Give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast. If you are interested in even more of our work, follow us on Twitter or subscribe to the free newsletter uh, that will be changing to Chit Chat Stocks. The link is in the show notes. On this episode, we got quite a few topics. We got some fun winners and losers of the week from the financial world. We got an interesting one. I'm going to try to share a video with the audio and we'll see if that works. But if it doesn't, then we have a fun one as well. Uh, we have Netflix spiffy pop from the Motley Fool founder, David Gardner. We got Tesla earnings. We got a nice thread from Ryan on Mexican stocks, plus other stuff like the Vision Pro launch and some of the complications with that. But before we get started, Ryan, why don't you talk to the listeners about our friends at public.com? Yeah, public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leading 5.1% APY. That's no fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that's 5.1% interest with no fees, 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums. And one more time, 5.1% interest with up to $5 million FDIC insurance, just 5.1% interest straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com slash chit chat money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. With that said, let's uh, get to the content for the week. Where do you want to kick things off? Well, we already got a question about Tesla, and Mm. unsurprising, everyone's interested in that company. It's the most popular stock, I think, in the world. Uh, There's a lot of thoughts every quarter on this company. When the earnings release comes out, Twitter is almost unusable because it's just screenshots, screen grabs. Sometimes I'm part of that problem of just thoughts from the quarter. Did you read the report at all? I saw the results on FinChat. I just looked up like the main segments the basically deliveries, auto gross profit, automotive revenue, all that stuff. But I did not actually read the report. No, I can say 
I don't have any interest in Tesla stock either way. So I have no interest in reading the report. I don't have a sense of whether it's going to, I think my gut tells me I wouldn't want to own it, but I don't really have a sense of ever wanting to short it or anything like that. So I don't read the reports. Did you read the report? I didn't read the whole thing, but glanced at some of the stuff. I thought it was interesting that operating margin I thought was a little higher than I would have expected. It it recovered from last quarter, which was a little bit surprising just because they've been decreasing prices again. I also thought it was interesting that they said to expect volume to grow at a slower clip in 2024 than 2023. And for example, total production grew 35% in 2023. So it's not like it was slow, but they do, they have been expecting or guiding for 50% production growth. So I guess they're going to come in a little bit lower there. They are talking about the next gen model in 2025, which in Musk time probably means 2027. But that's how it goes. I think the now like the stock is at whatever. Uh, it's down like 12% today, but where it's trading is $600 billion market cap or actually now closer to $550 billion right now. Whatever you think about that, I think it's overvalued. A lot of people do, but a lot of people think it's undervalued given the long-term stuff. I think more fascinating is to talk about the actual business. And the biggest concern I saw from the report, and it's kind of small in this earnings thing, but maybe let me try to zoom in here, is the market share. Now, I think it can be a bit of a Rorschach test where it depends what kind of lens you're looking through here. But let me share my screen. And for any of the listeners, they give a chart every quarter of their market share of Tesla vehicles by region over a trailing 12-month basis, and they do North America, Europe, and China. Now, U.S. and Canada, this is total vehicles. U.S. and Canada, they're at about 4%. Europe, they're just a touch below 3 China, they are probably closing in on 2.5%. Now, all three of those, except for China have stagnated in recent quarters. And I think the big concern, for me at least, is that this is on a trailing 12-month basis. So when you look at the last couple of quarters, they might have even seen some market share losses. Um, But that was probably the biggest concern for me is when you have um, never owned or shorted, but, you know. Actually, I did own a put option once, 2012. That should, I guess <laughs> so that technically sorry. counts. That technically counts as a short, but not an insignificant amount of money. <clears throat> that was just for fun. I think the biggest concern for me would be you got a niche car coming out, Cybertruck, maybe. Um, you have these older Model 3 and Model Ys, and they're decreasing the prices on these a ton, and the market share is kind of stagnating. That w- That combination of lowering prices to increase volumes but we're still not seeing that much progress on market share for you know a short period of time. It could it could improve in 2024. That would be the biggest concern for me, regardless of what current margins are at. Because if they force everyone else to be unprofitable, that could be honestly a smart move. All right. Well, I have zero uh, zero to contribute to the Tesla discussion. And he does mention here one of the one of our commenters and uh, mentioned Stellantis 
Have you looked at Stellantis at all? Never looked at them. I know they are a bit of a conglomerate of car companies, so I honestly don't even know <laughs> what brands they own. So I can't speak, uh, speak about them at all, but let's look at the old Google. Looked at them a couple they times. Own, and they, Burry yeah. owns them. They're like one of the cheap, they screen insanely cheap. They own Chrysler, Fiat, Dodge. Oh, okay. Interesting. Part of the UAW uh, debacle, if I'm not mistaken. It's, GM, it's Ford, GM, and Stellantis, right? Yeah. Yeah. The I think the labor unions pretty clearly are going to hurt all the auto companies because you saw the ones that actually have labor unions, uh, General Motors, Stellantis, and Ford. They signed their deals, and you can think, okay, well, that's an advantage for Toyota, Tesla, whoever that doesn't have these large union contracts, but these workers are all competing with each other. They can move to a company that pays more, and you saw that with all these competitors raising their wages across the board. So I think that's going to bring more pressure on stuff, and yeah. It's it's not it's not their best period. It's probably unsurprising the stock's down ten percent. But if you've held Tesla for the last five years, I don't think you can be complaining. It's probably still up what eight hundred percent, five hundred percent, something like that. So yeah, I don't like the stock, but that doesn't mean it can't work for other people. And I know a lot of people love it. They've been right for a long time. This could be a short blip. It's an interesting one where. I kind of honestly think they're being smart decreasing prices if they can keep up the quality and get enough out to consumers because they could really price out a lot of the competition um, in North America if they can do it profitably. Yeah, makes sense. If I was trying to go through some of the numbers and just looking at like the trailing 12 month figures. The gross profit is down substantially from its highs. Automotive okay. revenue is up, it's still up, but it's basically flat, if I'm not mistaken, on a trailing 12 month basis. And then deliveries, we got to say, and I know there's probably ways that they massage that number. It's a pretty staggering chart to see the deliveries increase over the last three years. Doesn't that does that is not the most important metric for the business, I should say, uh, because you can deliver a lot of cars at very little profit. Uh, but pretty staggering chart. I want to shift gears though. Uh, Mexican stocks. I wrote a thread this week. I've become thread boy. That's apparently uh, a way to boost engagement. But I wrote a thread this week about Mexican stocks. And the Mexican equity market overall. So I talked about the Buffett indicator briefly. It's not. So it's a useful metric. I think in the US, it maybe doesn't have as much usefulness in certain markets because a lot of services are nationalized in different countries. So what is the Buffett indicator? The Buffett indicator is the total market cap of stocks in a country divided by the country's GDP. So for the, in the US, I think it stands at around 180%. That's like, and there's like 7,000, there's even more. I think 
most publicly listed equities of any market overall, I believe. Um, and then there's other countries where if you apply it, it can be useful in determining kind of what people think of the equity market there. But you have to keep in mind that in the US, a lot of the GDP or our output comes from publicly listed companies. That's not necessarily the same everywhere. So I don't know how much it applies to certain markets, but I think it's still like a semi-decent barometer. And so for Mexico, it stands at 32% roughly. Keep in mind, it takes a while to update these numbers because the GDP reporting isn't always perfect. So 32%, that's really low. Uh, I think it was like 39th out of 67 countries that I saw. For reference, Colombia is in the same realm. I think it's slightly higher. So it's getting uh, kind of a discount to some economies where you think like this is more a place I'd be willing to invest. At least as an American, I think I'd be willing to invest in Mexico over some of the economies that report higher Buffett indicators. Uh, but I just think it's a good place to fish. We've talked about it before on this show. We've talked about kind of nearshoring and the fact that people are starting to relocate a lot of the supply chains uh, into Mexico. And there's a really strong demographic tailwind uh, that so many people, there's such a high percentage of the population is turning into like the family formation age and potential homeowners. And I, I just think it bodes well for the country's income. Anyway, six stocks that I thought were interesting. I can go through these, but were there any that stood out to you? I think the Mexican Stock Exchange again, but as well, I liked a lot of them, honestly. I think I liked all of them. Let me go find the tweet uh, because our friends at FinChat, I don't know well, when. I can, I can run through each of these quickly here. So the first one, I, and I did this in order of, basically, I wanted to find businesses that I thought were high quality that had an EV to EBIT below 15 times. And there are a lot in Mexico with an EV to EBIT below 15 times. Takes a little longer to figure out whether or not they're high quality, but I came up with this list of six. And so the first one, and this is in the order of cheapness, uh, is Grupo Herdez. They are a processed food manufacturer. They sell like beans, salsas, canned mushrooms, ice cream, basically tons of different processed foods and they distribute them all across Mexico six times EBIT roughly second one is the Mexican stock exchange a little under nine times EBIT we've kind of talked about that business before but obviously pretty wide moat there um, and that people really have to go through there if you're going to register your security and they help transfer custody and all that so third one here is ASR, essentially, it's one of the two, no, is it three or four? There's some publicly listed airport operators in Mexico. I think three. OMAB, ASR, Pacifico. and Pacifico. Yeah. And so this is the one that owns the Cancun airport. That's kind of its main, I would say its primary traffic driver. And then... G Mexico Transportes, 
This is the largest railroad operator in Mexico, 11 times EBIT. It's grown really quickly over the years. Uh, and it, I've got a map here basically of all the routes that they have, but it's like six, six US border locations and, or maybe it's five. And then they have a bunch of port terminals as well. And so it just covers a lot of the uh, Mexican landmass. And it is, as with most railroads, I think it's a pretty, pretty high quality business. And then Pacifico Airports. And lastly, Alsea. Alsea is an operator of fast food and fast casual restaurants. They franchise and they operate some of them. So it's kind of a, a mix of both. Uh, but they, the big brands are Domino's, Starbucks, Burger King. And then they have like a bunch of smaller ones as well. But all pretty interesting businesses. And they all trade really below 13 times an EV to EBIT. So EV to EBIT, any of those stand out to you? Well, I kind of like, I think the full basket does well. Uh, what stand out to me is Alsea because one, we had an interview with Ian Bizek, uh, I think maybe two years ago at this point that covered that one. He really liked the business. He really liked the management team and I think there's probably a long way for them to run, especially taking some of these American fast food brands into Latin America, Mexico, and you know places south of there. And then also the railroad. I've looked at that before. If we're thinking of the nearshoring opportunity, that seems like a huge beneficiary because it's not necessarily like a bunch of technology companies are going to get started in Mexico. Maybe they will be, but with the manufacturing stuff, if there's a deliberate push to shift that uh, to Mexico, well, the railroad's going to benefit, I would say. Uh-oh, yeah, Ryan, you're I'm sharing not, your I'm, I'm sure, Slack message there. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm sharing my screen now here. Uh, total revenues has been pretty solid for the railroad. 9% CAGR over the last nine years. The... EPS, also a 9% CAGR. For a business like this to be trading at, I think it was like nine times EBIT, I find it pretty staggering. Like you don't find, like, it's such a good place to fish, assuming that you can build confidence in investing in Mexico, which for us, I, I think we I think we have that. So um, yeah, I don't know. Just thought it was an interesting... Dividend yield five percent uh, there. Chart there. Uh, let's. I think I saw it in the top part there. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like it. Yeah. yeah there we go. All yeah. right. Well, for anyone watching that, uh, you could see some of those beautiful charts over at finchat.io. So Ryan, why don't you go through? There, they are an advertiser with us now. Full disclosure: Ryan does work for them as well. Uh, to just get that out of the way, but why don't you go through that advertisement and talk about the wonderful data that you can get at finchat.io. Yeah, we use it here a lot, and I use it a lot for our research for these episodes. But for anyone that doesn't actually know, FinChat, formerly known as Stratosphere, finchat.io, is a stock research platform that has not only standard financial data, but also company-specific segments and KPIs on over 1,500 stocks. So if you want to see like 
Amazon's AWS revenue over the last 10 years, you want to track match groups paying users, or you want to see how many cigarettes Philip Morris sells every quarter. These are the kind of KPIs that FinChat tracks millions more, actually, literally millions more KPIs. Um, that millions. you really, you really, yes, to emphasize wow. millions, uh, you really can't get anywhere else because. Uh, there really isn't a platform like this. And so you get a lot of the standard, you get all the standard data that you need, all the financial statements, but you also get all this extra data as well. It's also really cleanly designed and the data's all institutional quality, double check for accuracy. It's pretty easy to use. You recently started up on it. So I guess you can probably attest to it. Have you found it pretty easy to get started? It's very easy. And why don't you tell listeners where, I mean, I was using it for Hims and Hertz when we did that research report. I think people should go check out that episode for sure. Uh, spent about a month researching them. But yeah, I used that data a ton for that, for that episode. And why don't you tell listeners where they can go find FinChat.io yeah, and a discount with our specific link, which will be in the show notes. Yes, that is correct. So if you want to upgrade to any of the paid plans, they do have free account. So you can sign up for free, toy with it a little bit. Uh, but if you want to sign up for a paid plan, you can get 25% off using our link. And that link is finchat.io slash chitchat. That's finchat.io slash chitchat. And you'll get 25% off any paid plan. As Brett mentioned, that link will also be in our show notes. Let's keep rolling with this episode. Well, do you? Here's a question as we've been trying to do, we're doing the individual stock research shows. For a little teaser, Ryan uh, has been researching booking holdings, which we're going to be recording tomorrow, and that'll be a very fun one. Do you think one of these Mexican companies could be a fun one to research for one of those? Yes, the thing I will say, and I'm not trying to re-up our sponsor here, but this is where I, I find the aggregators, FinChat, very valuable is because going through the reporting from some of these Mexican company Mexican companies is a pain because the investor relations sites are not always that intuitive. So, yes, I think we should do one, but it will take. It's a little more of a homework project uh, because there's a. It's a little more cumbersome finding all the documents and stuff like that. So, all right. Well, maybe next one. I'm doing Elf Beauty uh, mm. for. For this one, it's actually done quite well over the last few years, and we'll see. We'll see why. And for anyone that's in was thinking, oh, why aren't they talking Netflix earnings? We might talk about David Gardner's Spiffy Pop, but we're do, we just recorded. I think it was hour twenty. It was definitely over an hour. A full discussion with two experts on Netflix stock, Francisco Oliveira and Alex Morris over at the TSOH. Uh, investing research service that will come out next week. So not talking Netflix, then tease it, little little suspense. It'll come out uh, next Wednesday. Okay. Got some questions here. Should we hit these, Ryan? Sure. Yeah. All right. From Tyler, thank you for joining every time. Do you two think small and micro caps will permanently underperform large caps due to companies staying private for longer and private equity buying the best small and micros? Well, I think to answer that question, you have to ask, do you think companies will continue to stay private for longer? And do you think private equity will continue to buy the best small and micros? Will that trend ever change? I think 
it's hard to see how venture capital the genie gets put back into the bottle. I don't know how that gets significantly smaller. I don't know how private equity just totally becomes significantly smaller 10 or 20 years from now. But I think with small and micros, they get zero flows. They have been, they've underperformed generally as a factor, I think, although no factor expert. I think for us, we want to target companies in small and micro land that are buying back stock. That's the key. Because if you have a permanently undervalued stock and you have some uh, management team buying it back, that's where the returns can really come from. And it can mitigate the flow risk, I would say. What do you think, Ryan? It, it makes sense that small and micro cap businesses don't really want to be public as much anymore because it's like it is costly to be public. You have to file the reports, and there is, uh, I think, an extra kind of layer of work that's required. Whereas, if you if you look at some of these real micro cap businesses, it's I I am surprised that they exert any resources stay in public when they could be investing that money into the business and they need the money. So it makes sense to me that venture capital and private equity has had such a run when it comes to kind of eating these small and micro cap businesses. Um, I've been burned, I think probably twice on micro cap or small cap stocks and really twice? once- what was- what was the other one? I know one, IntelliCheck. I was in that. Oh. IntelliCheck was Evoluce. Nah, we didn't bigger. get burned. Nah, I wouldn't say burned. That was, we just didn't make any money. It's just that it's really easy to tell a growth story. And especially when these businesses are small, if you can, like, if you buy into it, you, you think there's just so much upside. But the reality is, Big mega cap stocks, big tech, anyone that's not small cap, a lot of them have like, you know, there are inherent advantages to being a bigger business in that you have more resources, more money to throw at the wall, more money to throw at new investments. So it, it, most of the small caps are fighting an uphill battle, which I tend to try to avoid fishing in there. If they're just repurchasing stock and I think the business is sustainable, then you don't have to underwrite all that upside to be right, hopefully. And that's a situation I would be more comfortable with than something where I'm betting on big success. Because with IntelliCheck, there were like there were downsides I didn't even think about. Like during the conference call, they're like, we we hired two new sales reps and that was like a big thing. And it takes so long for them to get going that it's just so so much more difficult for a small business like that to grow than obviously the mega caps of the world. So it uh, I don't know. I think it kind of de- kind of deterred me from a lot of the small cap growth stories. Yeah, I'm, but look, we'll talk about the Netflix. Spiffy pop later. That's where you find the biggest winners. They all, every company starts small. But I agree with you. I think when you have to bet on maybe an unprofitable or break even small camp company to get bigger, that can be really difficult because if they're that small, usually it's for a reason. So 
it can be really hard. So I'd rather look at something that's already profitable or trades at kind of a net net basis in, in, in that regard. I have a comment here to add some context from James Goodwin says we have sub $20 million or 20 million British pounds companies listed in the United Kingdom. That might not be in the case in the U.S. Well, I think it's less common in the U.S. And then it's, he says it costs around 500,000 pounds a year to be public. I think that's similar to the United States. The United States may be a million dollars given uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. Okay. We had a question on LVMH. I didn't look at the numbers. Did you look at them? They were this morning. Apparently, this is the only number I have. And we just looked at them back in December, so I guess we kind of have some knowledge on the business now. They had 13% organic revenue growth. Keeps chugging along. I'm seeing 10% here. Oh. Well, maybe that's constant currency or not. Hold on, let me double check. The, a commenter said 13% organic okay. growth, so I wouldn't say, you know. <laughs> no, you might be right. I, I'm looking at whatever. The Good businesses. Good yeah. businesses. I don't know why I'm overlooking it. And I don't know why I haven't tracked it a little more closely because it literally we went through the whole show and I thought, damn, this is a really good business. And I didn't look at the valuation. And I thought, don't worry, valuation will keep me out of it. And the valuation was not that crazy, especially relative to we looked at Hermes and Ferrari after that, and it's like half the valuation or half the multiple of those businesses but there's something that's like just keeping me away i don't know what it is hermes and ferrari are i would say higher quality businesses although i had i said ferrari was extremely durable as a business i had a lot of people saying they were going to go out like go extinct in like five to ten years which i thought was fascinating i don't know what what just because of electric vehicles i just uh. that doesn't make much sense to me yeah Comment here from Tyler, LVMH or Hermes, who performs better over five years, and he says LVMH has stuffed the channel a bit, possibly, and they, the worry with LVMH is why I think it's a little lower quality and still a good business, obviously, given the stock returns and the management team, is you worry that they're maybe oversupplying. And the brand, the part of the brand is exclusivity, and you know we had that debate during the show. But yeah, the Hermes valuation is ridiculous. The what? The Hermes valuation is ridiculous. I wouldn't necessarily say it's ridiculous, but your forward returns are basically. I no, actually, like maybe what, it's the right multiple. It's the right multiple, but I don't think you see absurd returns going forward. Yeah, you probably get similar to Treasuries, which yeah, maybe it's so it's, high it's, quality that it deserves. It, that's what. I, that yeah, it's, it's a stick. It's as predictable as U.S. Treasuries, <laughs> probably yeah. not, but uh, it's kind of what it seems like. So, I would prefer LVMH. Seems like they have a higher chance or a higher probability of generating better than Treasury returns for shareholders. And betting against Bernard Arnault has not. Uh, worked out well over the last decade and i don't see any reason why his success won't continue let me i don't know his I son have no, or well, sons uh, his daughter's actually isn't she kind of in the she is the next in line i believe successor? now i don't know the answer to this so this either is going to be um i don't want to say a dunk but uh let's 
Let's see. We have 10 years. Okay. What stock do you think has performed better on a total return basis over the last 10 years? LVMH or Hermes? Hmm. LVMH. No. It's probably close, no? It's close. LVMH, 427% cumulative total return. And Hermes, 572%. Wow. I'm not complaining about either of those returns. I'm a shareholder. No. What's the what's good. the S&P 500? Like 300? Let me add that in there. 225%. And that's, I mean, that's some record, some really great 10 years. Yeah. All right, we're halfway through. Do we want to do winners and losers? I have what potentially might be a very fun one. Did you see the pasture? That uh, that may have been the most absurd video I've watched this year yeah. so far. Okay, I'm gonna try to work some zoom magic here. We're gonna share the screen, but I'm also gonna. But I want to figure out how I can share the audio. I don't know if you can. I don't know if no, you can. Try. You can. Should we be doing this on the fly? Yeah, let me see if I can figure out in five seconds here. Oh, but just give some of the quotes that he said. No, no, it doesn't do it justice. But uh, let's see. All right. Um. Okay, this is good audio. Where is the? Where is I'll the... give some context before you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, try to find my notes here. Video. So okay. this pastor uh, got. I don't know if he created it or perpetuated it, but essentially pushed this crypto scam to his churchgoers. And he is being fined by he's being fined, I think like $1.3 million. And basically he told he said God told him to push this crypto scam to everyone. And then uh I don't want to spoil the whole video, but it was some outrageous takes. I think that, I I figured it out. Okay. Thank Give you for the context. Go. Yeah. For basically seven millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency that is deemed worthless by the state. Now the reason that they're seeing that it's worthless is because there is no exit for people who have bought. We launched an exchange, the exchange technology failed, things went downhill, and from that point forward, we've just been we've just been waiting on the Lord literally for a miracle. Did you like that part? <laughs> he just tossed that on there. You know, we, we locked you into this scam, but we've been telling we've been waiting on the Lord. And you know, eh. okay. So the charges are that Caitlin and I pocketed one point three million dollars, and I just want to come out and say that those uh, charges are true. So there's been $1.3 million. All right. I don't think we have to watch the whole thing. It's two minutes. We can maybe, you can find it. It's a two minute video that's uh, Wall Street Bets mod made. Uh, let me stop. The, I think my favorite quote I mean, was when he said. 1.3 million. That is true. We stole that from you guys. <laughs> but no, my favorite part is when he says, we, the, the Lord then told us to do a home remodel with that money. And oh, yeah. they did a they remodeled their house and he's like, well, the Lord told us to. Uh, so yeah, tough look for pr pretty much all around. Um, 
but gosh, it's is so. There a... Go ahead. Be wary who you take financial advice from. I suppose is maybe the takeaway here. <laughs> is the base rate on anything crypto that it's a scam? Because ninety percent turn out to be. Oh, we're just stealing people's money. Yeah. And this is where every time I see people, especially people in the financial world, intermingling religion with it, it more often than not is like they're using it as a part of their sales pitch. Like we've seen Kathy Wood do this at times too. And I just don't like to see it. Now, if you're using it as, I know people that use it as like they're religious and it's part of their principles and they don't want to invest in things that kind of go against some of their principles. That's a different situation. But if you're using it to raise money, I just think that is the worst kind of situation. I really don't like that. Yeah. Like a uh, telling God told me that you need to give me this money. And then, oh, wait, you're locked into this and I'm going to take it all and remodel my house. Sorry, guys. What's weird in that video is how honest he was. He, I think crazy. he might just not be aware. That he's a criminal? I, I think it seemed like he's lacking awareness, or he probably wouldn't have made that video. That is wild stuff. That is wild stuff. Well, I think the share something worked. Someone commented it did. Uh, but I think that can be useful. I saw that you can do that on Zoom. We're very technologically advanced here. So I think in the future, there's a little button there that I found that you can share the sound. I think that can be quite helpful for these power hours. But uh, James Goodwin said the righteous gemstones. Yeah, I watched that show. Kind of a good one. Got the guy from Workaholics in there. Very funny on HBO. Uh, But now that was my, well, I don't know if you call the pastor a winner, but definitely his investors were losers. But I have a winner this week, and it is the founder of The Motley Fool, David Gardner, uh, I said we weren't going to talk Netflix earnings. We are going to talk that with uh, Alex Morris and Francisco Oliveira next week. But I did want to mention, I threw out a tweet that it was possible that David Gardner Hunter bagged on his cost basis in Netflix. And I did at him on the old Twitter or X machine, however you want to call it. And he actually responded and he said, not a Hunter bagger, but a 28 pop Spiffy pop, which means I think a hundred, uh, a double in a day. So 28 bag in one day, a $1.86 cost basis based back in 2004. Um, so yeah, he definitely, <laughs> Mr. Never Sell definitely was a big winner. What was that yesterday after the, the Netflix earnings? But if, or when the day comes that he 100 bags his cost basis in a single day, that will probably be the most impressive investment achievement I've I've heard of. This of uh, this. How about this century? The single that would be the best single stock investment that I've witnessed. Yeah, yeah. It might I mean, be right now. Yeah. Obviously, they're like, okay, Monster had better returns than Netflix, not by the, uh, well, by a considerable amount, but Netflix isn't that far behind them in terms of like ranking stocks with the best returns. But I don't know if I've ever seen anyone hold something 
through all those total returns. Yeah, and what's interesting is that a lot of people think they are better than someone like David Gardner, right? There's a lot of people that are very smug by the Molly Fool style. I should say full disclosure, I write for them, so I might be biased. They think, ah, oh, but I'm way better than this. Like they don't do that strong of analysis, blah, 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 blah. And then he doesn't care because he's his returns are better than you. And he's gonna do this. He does not care if people think it's a simple strategy. He bought Netflix, he's never gonna sell it. And it's one gonna be one of the best investments ever. Yeah, and it's actually his strategy is so much more replicable for the individual than some elaborate DCF that takes or tidbits from like every single every single Tegas call on planet Earth or like going and talking to people at the company or you know having all this like informational advantage. David says, what's his rule? It's that if I snap my fingers and this were gone, this service and it were gone, it's the snap test. How much would it impact people? And that's been like a guiding principle for him for while he's been investing. And I think it served him really well. And you can see it. Everyone, you know, kind of shits on the strategy, but it's produced remarkable returns. And I think it's replicable for the average investor. Yeah. And what's interesting is that a lot of people do that, right? I mean, we see it constantly. But his returns are better than most of the people that are saying that. So at the end of the day, the numbers speak for themselves. Here's people talk about the strikeouts. I see a comment here and Tyler provides a great point. People love to highlight the strikeouts where it's recommending open door or something. Yeah. 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 Recommending something that's gone to zero or close to zero. And the it's, it's not one-to-one. Like if you recommend five things that go to zero and you recommend Netflix, Four go to zero, you have Netflix, your returns are as good as Buffett. Yeah. It's, uh, I think people don't appreciate that that is going to be a part of the strategy that he will have zeros and that these are a bit higher risk, higher upside type situations. I agree. Okay. Speculative question. By the year 2030, mm, let's give a little more time, 2032. Will Netflix close at a market cap above a trillion dollars? On the spot, what do you think? Yes or no? What's it at today? Two fifty. Twenty thirty-two. Is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, I think so. And we just had this discussion with Alex and Francisco, but they are in a position now where I think they are so advantaged that the cash flow is just going to fly in where they don't have to increase spend anymore to keep winning and they might but they don't have to right i mean if they held their spend steady they're still spending more than everyone else and they're just raking in cash flow on top of it and there's just such such scale advantages now for them where they could produce something that's not 
Apple TV might have a higher quality show, but Netflix is going to get 10 times more views on yeah. a lower quality show. Yeah. Four bagger though. It's still, it'd still have to outperform most likely. I, I agree with you though. All right. All right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. New topic. You got anything else for us? What do you think? No, I mean, it's earnings season. This is kind of the uh, like calm before the storm when big tech starts rolling in next week. Uh, I usually put these questions in here, kind of discussion questions for us. Have we made any changes to our portfolio? Have we, do we have anything on the watch list? So I guess for you, any portfolio changes the last week? Nothing, nothing. Anything that you're there. thinking about changing? No. <laughs> yeah, well, what would nothing. be your next buy if you got cash in the door tomorrow? Probably coupon keeps going down. So I saw four pretty insane stats actually, or facts about coupon, if I can find it here. And I want to share these. So I'm sorry if you can hear the scrolling on my mouse. The uh, four, this is what I tweeted four wild facts about coupon. 99.3% of orders are delivered in less than 24 hours. That might be higher now. Half of the Korean population has downloaded their app. 70% of the population lives within seven miles of the logistics center. I think it's actually higher now. And then this one surprised me. And this is from a 2018 interview with Bom Suk Kim. He says, it is not an exaggeration to say we are in every single apartment complex or apartment building in Korea every day. Yeah. Pretty, pretty astounding stat. They are, I think, a better e-commerce business than Amazon. Pure, and we're talking the pure play e-commerce economics and moat. Nah, Amazon has other stuff to add on top that might expand the moat, but coupon... And coupons in a smaller market uh, uh, right now. But yeah, they do a really, really good job. And their customer value proposition is insane. I wish they, I wish I could have it. We should, uh, do we know when their investor day is? We got to go. I know, I know. And we missed the Costco one. I should have, apparently it was recently. So maybe next year. But let's start going to these things. The ones in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a lot in Seattle. I know. 
I know. We can just pop right in. No, I don't know what it is, but I'll. I'll... We're not Costco shareholders, though. <laughs> yeah, but you can. Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of an expensive one. <laughs> I guess you have to buy one, but you just sell it after, I guess, just to go to the meeting. Yeah. Okay. We talked small cap. Oh, we had a comment here that says, consider that South Korea is the size of Georgia. Yes. And the population is 50 million. So the population density makes it much, much easier to run a highly profitable e-commerce operation. You don't need the $100 billion in CapEx that Amazon spends. You may might need 10 to get the same result or even better. And your delivery times can be that much better. And their tech they're insanely tech savvy. So it's like 50 million people that maybe not exactly 50 million people, but around that, that are using mobile phones and are actually potential customers. Other than like the kids, uh, I'm talking about the households are all seems like pretty tech savvy. True. True. Okay. We were talking small and micro caps. Did you, you might've seen this, the, someone was talking about governance at a micro cap stock. This is a company called Smart Rent. Yeah, that is the ticker. Okay, so this is just some anonymous account said, are any other Smart Rent investors somewhat concerned that one, the CEO earns over $750,000 a year as a salary, 50% higher than peers. The CEO has hired his wife as chief of staff who earns more than the chief financial officer, but her resume doesn't seem to be anywhere. She doesn't have a LinkedIn. The acquisition that they did for $135 million in 2022 was a company that was part owned by one of their largest shareholders and two of smart rent board of directors. And the CEO and three of the directors all worked together at prior companies. I think nothing going on there. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, I think small cap and micro cap land the governance issues just because no one's investigating them, there's less scrutiny on them, is really prevalent. There's a lot of companies that are built to take the money and give it to the board of directors and the executive team. And the frequency of of that is high in these companies. And I just, that's something you got to look through. And it's got to be, it's for me, it's a, okay, if I see that type of thing, I'm not touching this at all. It is. And and you probably have read more proxies than me because you were doing the proxy work on our old not so deep set not so deep dive shows. But every time I read one, I think, what is going on? Like this is a disease. And you'd think like some of these okay, we looked at booking and or I looked at booking and I guess a little foreshadowing, they got paid very well. And if you First of all, I think shareholder activism is kind of low in general. I think a lot of shareholders don't are either intimidated by the process of participating in votes or just don't care enough that it always seems negligible, but executives should not be taking $50 million base salaries. And it's you can always say if you're like, why do you take 50 million? It's like, well, our peers also take 50 million. Okay, that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Uh, I don't know. It's just gets gets me frustrated looking at it. Every time I read a proxy, I can't help but think like it's such a waste. Yeah, the guy that runs the non-gap newsletter said he quote tweeted the smart tweet smart rent thing and said death taxes and amusing small cap proxy disclosures. CEO spouse gets paid seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in target comp to service chief of staff. 
Yeah. She and makes. She's apparently also, and this is from the proxy. He had a little quote tweet here. Miss, no way. This is Miss Rowdy Bush. Okay, that's that's her name. Is also entitled to receive a target bonus equal to fifty percent of her base salary, and an annual equity award equal to three hundred thousand dollars. Great, perfect. That's what, what you want your chief of staff. That's that name is uh, can't be real, but that's besides the point. Um. Yeah, I also thought it was funny one time when someone said they invented chief of staff so they didn't want to call people secretaries anymore, uh, males secretaries, which I thought made a lot of sense because I never really understood the chief of staff role. Uh, but we're getting off topic. No. It, it, go ahead. It's so rare that you see like a great proxy. And I think a lot of the, the easiest way to resolve it it's just to have an owner operator. But, you know, when you're looking at businesses that are 50 years old, yeah, typically, sorry, it's not going to be the founder. So that part's unfortunate. But, well, stuff that's founded the last 10, 15 years, I don't know. We just looked at hims and hers, and that proxy was a huge concern. And it was founder controlled, founder led, and started less than 10 years ago. I wonder if it's a mistake to, care too much about the proxy statement I just like, is it, is it gonna hurt yeah. my returns in the long run to be like oh this guy takes a little too much money yeah i don't think that is like the end of the day i don't think that should keep you out of something like booking but it's the other stuff like related party transactions gummy deals with uh a spouse mm, terrible bonus metrics i think it's less on the amount getting paid unless it's going to it's a company generating $10 million in earnings and the CEO is getting paid $5 million. I think it's more on the incentives like, oh, with hims and hers, the big concern was they have a negative adjusted EBITDA target. If they hit a negative adjusted EBITDA number, they get a fat bonus. I think it's that would be the more concern for me versus the the nominal amount, the nominal, nominal dollar value. Especially when, like, so if you're, shooting for an adjusted EBITDA target and you're an executive and you get a huge payout if you especially if it's negative to hit that adjusted EBITDA target a lot of the time you're backing that out of next year's adjusted EBITDA because you're adjusting out the stock-based comp that oh, yeah. you are granting yourself it's this horrible self-reinforcing cycle where it's like I'm getting paid more and more and the adjustments are getting bigger and bigger oh yeah okay. but some companies back it out or some companies add it back like they they don't include their own compensation in the adjusted EBITDA yeah you just use cash flow typically okay I guess I should ask you have you made any changes to the portfolio this week anything on the watch list anything you're buying do you have any heroes and zeros Every, I always get like this sense right before earnings where I'm like, I need to own this one thing. Like it was just a, it's a horrible tr characteristic to have, but, uh, Philip Morris, I'm like, I just feel like Zen, which by the way, did you see all this stuff about people are thinking about banning Zen? Oh yeah. Or yeah. Schumer, yeah, whatever. Those overdoses on Zen are really, what's the problem in American cities? <laughs> yeah. Everyone's overdosing on that. Yeah. That's definitely the drug to focus on. The uh, but anyway, the 
I really think Philip Morris is something I want to get own again. I don't have a whole lot of like just cash right now. So I probably have to sell something. Don't really want to do that. It feels like they're going to have a good quarter. I think that is going to be one of the most underrated growth businesses of the next decade. Philip Morris International. All right. You heard it here first, guys. We did do a show on them some point in 2023. Go listen to that for the full info. Do I do like that company as well. But Zen is just so... Why'd they take it from us? Yeah, I know. I, I, I gotta see. I gotta forget. You know, go through the five stages of grief, and we gotta move on. But with where the market's trading at, and where these the big three tobacco companies have just fallen and fallen, I believe Altria fell below forty. British American Tobacco is below thirty. Philip Morris International is pushing ninety dollars a share. Do you think equal weighted those three don't reinvest dividends? let's say, and it's in a tax-free account, total return uh, better than, say, S&P over the next five years. What do you think? I think they'd win. And I would adjust that strategy. I would not reinvest dividends for Altria Altria and uh, British American, but I would take the dividends and invest them into Philip Morris. It just, I like, I see a question here at current levels, which one has the best forward risk return? or maybe that's rate of return. Um, I like Philip Morris the most. And when it's a business that's growing in volumes, which they've kind of, they plateaued total volumes. So that includes the uh, Icos machines, Icos heat sticks, cigarettes, and Zins. And I think there's probably some other stuff in there, but those are the big three. They are growing volumes again. I don't see a really a world in which British American and Altria begin growing volumes anytime soon. So I just feel like they're going to be Philip Morris is going to be facing easier decisions and could surprise to the upside as opposed to kind of this concern about how quick are people going to move off of cigarettes. I don't want to have to constantly face that, but I'm okay taking a 10% dividend yield in the meantime. Yeah, I like all three, I guess, versus the S&P over the next five years. But who knows? I just saw a clip on CNBC that said we're pricing companies on a P to I, which is price to innovation. So the bubble's back and we're cooking. No. All right. Speaking of rose-colored glasses, the Apple Vision Pro is launching. Seems like they have pretty low supply, but they're selling them all out, which I think they were targeting like a hundred thousand. I was saying, isn't it like twenty percent of that just the product testers? That there's a million of those now. There's so many of those yeah. across the internet. It's just okay, influencers but, they like give it out to, right? Yeah, and journalists, yeah, stuff like that. Okay, but the big I think story, and I don't think it's underrated. It's been reported everywhere. Is that a lot of apps are not joining. So Netflix, Spotify, and YouTube are not joining as apps. You have to go through a web application, or excuse me, a web browser to use them. Do you think Apple's incredibly restrictive and kind of, not, I don't want to say stealing, but value extraction from the apps, let's put it like that, over the last 10 years is going to bite them in the butt with this new platform? I don't know if that's why these companies aren't adding it. 
I wonder if it's because they just don't think it's worth the effort right now. Well, here's not a lot of people. It, said would, that. would it be zero effort to get yeah. on that platform? Oh, because then, yeah. they 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 made a thing to make it seamless for people to trans. They have a like a button that you click on your developer thing, or maybe it's not a button that says translate my iPad app to a Vision Pro app. Um, then yeah, that seems like probably the big reason why they don't want to do it. I was talking with friends about this, like, oh, you hear about the Apple Vision Pro thing? And I don't know when it was coming out. I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess. Like, are you going to buy one? They're like, no, nah, but they're so cool. I was just thinking, like... Are they? <laughs> no one... When the iPhone launched, it was, like, this very useful thing. Like, mm. you could listen to your music. You could go on the internet. You could call people. You could text people all from one device. Very easy. Very useful. I don't see the usefulness here. And I just yeah, don't I see this getting off the ground. Now, yeah. Especially at $3,000. Like who's, maybe if it was critical and really usable, people would be buying it, but I just don't see it happening. Yeah, that is an interesting point. The customer value proposition for the iPhone and even the stuff before that, the iPod Touch, the first iPod, the, forgetting some of the other ones, the value proposition versus the technology at the time was a huge step up and, yeah, I don't I don't really see it for this one. Who knows? There's a lot of talk about how it's like the technology is so great, but so are, so is the stuff Meta's doing. Doesn't mean you're going to get a good ROI. I really struggle to see how many people are going to use these things. They talk about watching movies, but if I'm going to watch a movie. Man, <laughs> I'll spend $3,000 on a nice home theater, I guess. And there was also the comments about how your neck starts hurting after 15 minutes. So, so like, it sounds some, ideal for movie watching. That's what I was. Yeah, I was. I think a lot of people had that comment uh, when I tweeted that out. The if if it gets uncomfortable after 15 minutes, I, I think that's a huge issue. And not to state the obvious, but if we're going to make this a mass market product, yeah. I think it's dumb. I think it is dumb. I don't think it's going to be that useful. Don't think it'll be that well adopted. And I think Meta's wasting money too. Yeah. So that's that's where I stand. But we've gone for longer than an hour. So that is uh well, we did start late. So actually this is exactly an hour. 149. Really? Right. Yeah. So good timing on that though. Thank you everyone for joining. I think this was a very fun one. Earnings season, always fun. We could talk for hours. We'll be talking more earnings next week. I'm assuming some of the big tech stuff, probably some updates on companies that we follow. We got, remember the interview coming out with Alex and Francisco. So that'll come out on Wednesday, the week after we're going to have Ryan's booking research report. And then after that, TBD. We'll be doing some fun stuff. I think people have liked our investor-focused interviews as well, the one on Norbert Liu and then uh, the Ray Dalio one. Okay, let's hit the disclosure. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan, I, or any podcast guest may hold securities discussed in this podcast, may have held them in the past, and may buy, sell, or hold them in the future. Thank you, everyone, for the nice comments. You can watch these live Thursdays, midday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube or listen to the podcast recording wherever you get your podcast. 
Again, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time.